media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Mark 15. We have just a a couple sermons left uh, to cover Mark. Uh, Mark has been anxious to get to this place of telling us about the crucifixion, uh, the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, we said last week that he really didn't go into a lot of details of, of thorns and nails and all those kind of things, but he spent a lot more time really trying to cover this humility of Christ when he, we see this display of Christ that even though people are mocking him, and we talked about how offensive that was to us, that you know there's a lot of us that could probably keep our calm in a lot of situations, but when people start mocking you, they start getting in your face, pointing you, and as it said last week, kind of wagging their heads back, and that Christ was still this, this silent lamb, ready to give his life for us. And so we see this complete humility. And we began to look last week uh, in Isaiah 53, 5, and kind of tying that into Mark's gospel. How this Old Testament prophecy that came hundreds of years before Christ would actually do this, how it brings it into the, the full light of what he accomplished. Isaiah 53, 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. I, we said it last week. I don't know that we can really, really grasp the fullness of that. And this morning I would have a similar question because we read just a couple of verses later in Isaiah something else that kind of just really, I don't know about you, but it blows my mind. It's hard for me to comprehend. And we find it in, in Isaiah 53.10. We find these words. Yet it was the will of the Lord, and it's remain, uh, uh, meaning the Father there, the word that's being used. It was the will of the Father to crush him. Who's him? The Son. Have you ever seen that in Isaiah before? Right after it's talking about the sacrifice that he's going to give to us, it's this, this promise of, of that Christ is going to be this Lamb of God. And it, it tells us it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Other translations say it this way. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. And I think that that really does as a lot of justice to the, the original text. Uh, in the Revised Standard Version, yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. King James Version, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Is, is that confusing to you? Because when we think of God the Father and his relationship to God the Son... What we see is a loving relationship. I mean, why would God the Father be pleased to crush son, his son Christ? We begin to look and we begin to, to especially the use of the word please, we, we begin to, okay, what is meant here? Because everything about the life of Christ was pleasing to his Father. I mean, we go back and we look at his baptism. We look at the transfiguration. What we see in Matthew 3.17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my, what? Beloved son. This isn't just my son. This is my beloved son. In whom I am well. I'm, I'm pleased. We go forward and in the ministry, near the end of the ministry of Christ and the Mount of Transfiguration, and we see again this voice come from heaven, Matthew 17, 5. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son. The Father is very much making know of how he feels about it, the Son. 
and in, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So what happened, guys? Is Isaiah getting it wrong? Did somehow he kind of get confused? Uh, did he hear it wrong from God? That the father was pleased to crush the son? What transpired there? Why would God the Father ever be pleased to crush the Son? This question becomes even more relevant when we read from our text this morning. Mark chapter 15. Let's pick up where we left off last week, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lama Sakbadini, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had seven different what we call sayings on the cross. Seven times that he spoke. We call them the seven sayings of Christ. And this is the one that is the most puzzling to me, maybe perhaps to you also. Because when we look at most of the sayings of Christ on the cross, most of them are very endearing in nature. I mean, think about it. We talked about last week that right at the point that they were mocking him, if we look at the parallel of the Gospels, the very point that they're mocking him, group after group after group, mocking Christ and who he is, and yet at the same time he was praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's amazing. That's endearing. What about this statement? Today you will be with me in paradise. One of those original mockers, you know, the two thieves on each side, they originally were both mocking him. But during the course of that day and those hours, that one began to see, no, this is not the truth of who this man is. We deserve to be here, but he doesn't. And when one is still reviling, he says, don't you know that we here are here because we're, we're guilty? But this man has done nothing. He's completely innocent. And he turns to Christ and, and, Better yet, Christ turns to him. Today you'll be with me in paradise. We see this loving work. We see this salvation work in Christ. Even when everybody's mocking him. Even in the the midst of all that physical pain, the torment. So we kind of get that. We even get the endearing part when he looks over to Mary and, and he says, Behold, woman, your son. And he points to John. And then he tells John, John, behold, your mother. I mean, here he is. He's God. And yet this humanity that he came and he has an earthly mother and he cares about his mother while he's dying on the cross. So we look at these seven saints and we said, how endearing, how hopeful. You know, we would maybe even use the word, well, man, that's just amazing and sweet. And yet we come upon this in Mark and we hear these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to grasp that. It's hard for me to to understand the implication of that. It's hard for me to see anything that would be endearing whatsoever. Yet I would challenge you this morning that perhaps this is the most endearing statement that Christ made on the cross. Bobby, how can you say that? God would forsake the the son. He's kind of crying out with this question mark. He's crying out to his father. How could this be endearing? Well, allow me to take us through the rest of this passage and other parallel passages and, and see that 
what Christ has proclaimed, that what he's experienced there is this depth of separation, this, this separation caused by sin, but not his own sin, but your sin and my sin. This forsaking is happening, but not because he deserved it, but because you and I deserved it. But this Lamb of God was willing to take it upon himself and suffer all the consequences so that you and I would not have to. I believe that maybe it is the most endearing of all the sayings. You see, one thing that we just don't grasp is God's hatred for sin. You have to, you have to understand, we, we minimize sin and we minimize two things about our understanding of sin. Number one, God's holy wrath against it and our complete deprav- depravity from it. Somehow in our mind, we think if we have a really good day and we do something heroic for Jesus, that God's going, way to go. That's why I saved you right there, buddy, so you can do heroic things for the kingdom. And that's just not biblical, guys. He didn't save us because of our heroics or any righteousness that we have. He didn't even save us for any future righteousness that we would have on our own. He saved us only because... Christ would die. And when we put our trust upon him and we put our faith in his work, he takes all of our sins and he puts them on Christ and he takes all of his righteousness and he imputes it to us. And and we can look at that in 2 Corinthians 5.21 and we can read those words, but I don't know that we really have this full capacity to grasp that. But one day we will. One day we will. Because when we stand before holy God, guess what we won't notice? (laughs) His holiness supreme. The veil will be taken off. Now, I don't know how we're going to see the depth of our sin, but I believe that somehow we are going to be able to recognize in His holiness the depth of our sin. Not that it's present anymore because it's going to be gone because of, it's already gone because of Christ, but that we're going to be able to see that this gap was not just kind of a couple feet. It wasn't just kind of a couple miles. It was forever. For the first time. We might be able to sing that song Amazing Grace with more understanding than we ever sang it while we were here on earth. See, when we read verses like Romans 6.23 where it says the wages of sin is death, we treat it as though what God really means is, well, <laughs> the wages of sin is like a bad cold. You might experience them like hard things, but you know you, you might live from it. And that's not what he said. The wages of sin is Death, a physical death, a spiritual death, a separation from a holy God. Our sin isn't like some virus or some flu that we kind of feel bad for a while and that maybe with the right medicine we can get over if we just kind of get lucky or somehow we just work hard. No. Folks, you and I, we had a death sentence. Well, Pastor, you know, the last couple of weeks you've been preaching like every week about sin. I do that unapologetically. <laughs> because the text is, as, it, as we go to the cross, as Mark is going to the cross, he's not giving us kind of morals for life. As we get to the cross, he's putting the focus more and more, our sinfulness and our depravity, and this work that Christ is doing. He's trying to paint as much as we can grasp this width of this. And folks, we see those verses like Romans 6.23 that talks us about that the wages of sin is death, and we begin maybe just a little bit to understand that. This death is a physical death. It is a spiritual death. It is a separation from the holiness of God. Paul wrote it this way in 2 Thessalonians 
They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Well, what is he trying to tell us there? Well, what is it that we will experience physically, spiritually, in every way? Separation. You just kind of want to wrap that up in, in one word. It's, it's separation. He said, we're going to do this apart from a holy God. Well, well pastor, are you sure you just didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed this morning? No, actually, I'm feeling pretty good. I got an extra hour of sleep. I would think that maybe more clarity than, than normal. Dear people, let's not be cute about what's happening here in Mark 15, 34. Christ is forsaken because of God's absolute holiness. Christ is forsaken because of God's complete justice. And just because it's his son, there is no watering down to the penalty. There's no looking the other way. There's nothing under the table. There's no favoritism. There's no special deal because it just happens to be Christ instead of you and I. Grasp this as much as we can. Our human mind can only conceive a, a, a little bit of this, but can you kind of understand that what's happening here is that not that Jesus received partial penalty of our sins, a taste of our sins, but the completeness of our sins. Remember back in the Garden of Gethsemane when he talks about drinking this cup of wrath? That's what he means. God's holy wrath against sin. And you remember when it said that he's going to drink every drop. He's not just going to sip it. He's not going to go, oh, that tastes bad. I don't know that I want the rest. It's the fullness of this. And when we begin to grasp the depth of these questions, we begin to see that this crushing that Isaiah talked about, that would seem very normal now. For a holy God to be that much against sinfulness. Does that make sense to you? That God in his holiness would be against anything that is sinful. Does it make sense to you that God is not light when it comes to sinfulness? But that he would crush it. Do you have a certain kind of joy when justice is done and what we would call a wrath against something that is evil is done. Do, do you, is there a part of you that seems, even in, in our own fallen capacity, that can appreciate, well, justice was done. And, and a just sentence was done. Because this was evil. I mean, take the most horrendous crime that you could ever think of. Personalize it, that it was done to your family. And there's a certain amount of justice. There is a certain amount of joy in the sense that not that in this wrongness that all of a sudden that there's been a wrath against it. Somebody else is agreeing with you that doesn't know you that this was so wrong. This is what's happening here. That's what it means in Galatians 3.13. When Paul is writing, he talks about this curse. Look what he says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's, who is hanged on a tree. Why such heavy language? Why such dark language? 
Because God hates sin. And a holy God can feel no other way about sin. God allows one sin, allows one sin into his presence and to, to, to go unanswered, and he is not a holy God anymore. This is, this is something that God is in his totality, that he is completely holy. And that means a complete wrath against sinfulness, and it means a complete justice has to be done, and that's what Christ is doing. Look at back in Mark chapter 15. Go down to verse 37, 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple that's being referred to is, is Herod's uh, temple. And it was the temple that Jesus went to. is the one of Jesus' day. And like the Old Testament, uh, when God said, okay, there's going to be this place called the Holy of Holies. And it was kind of representative and symbolic of the presence of God. Originally in the tabernacle, since they were nomadic people and they were moving through, but eventually it was in the, the temple. They made a permanent temple. And so they still had this place that was in uh, the inner court, and then you could come into the, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And there was this big curtain, veil, that separated the people from this place that was representative of the presence of God. In Jesus' day, they, they say that this veil, this curtain, was 60 feet high. It was 30 feet wide and 4 inches thick. Now, do the math on that. <laughs> I mean, somebody who's worked with fabric before, and just think about that. It took 300 priests to carry this so that it would not touch the ground. This, this was the, the wall between holy God and sinful man. And yet look what happens. Again, verse 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn into two from top to bottom. That which separated us from a holy God, torn in two by the finished work of Christ. When Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Please understand, guys, please understand that in that abandonment, in that judgment of God's wrath uh, against sin, that Christ felt the totality of that. But please understand this. That was, that was reserved for you and for me. And yet this loving Christ stood in our place. This loving Christ takes all of that wrath so that one day you and I could justly, please hear this, could justly stand before God. Have you ever sinned and you think, the last place I want to be right now is before God? If I have my theology correct, if I have my grasp, my little bit of human understanding of this, we would think that maybe one day we're going to go to heaven. And I don't know how they're going to do it. You know, people say, well, you're going to see a movie of your life. I don't know how God's going to do it. I really don't. I'm okay with that mystery. But there's going to be a part that we would think, oh, my goodness, God is going to see some things, not just pre-Christ, but post-Christ. Have you ever had that fault? 
Okay, all this is forgiven on the, the pre-Christ. We become a brand new creation. Well, what about post-Christ? I mean, there's some things, guys, that I would imagine that many of us would go, you know, I just don't feel like I could stand before a holy God. Even my simple understanding of holiness, I will tell you this. I, will, I, I don't know how it's going to work. I just know that it will. We will stand there justly before a holy God. Why? Because God is forgetful of our sins? No, because Christ has paid the full price of those sins. Guys, we, we see this repeated message of sinfulness and, and, and grace and, and the work of Christ in these last chapters. It's week after week we've been talking about sin. Why? Because we're just hung up on that? No, because this is our story. This is our hope. And even in this seven, the one of these seven sayings that's probably the hardest to grasp. My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Please understand that that forsaking has now allowed you and I into the presence of a holy God. This is what Hebrews says. Hey, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, and then we're going to skip down and just see the first part of verse 22. Therefore, brothers, now, now notice that second word. What's the second word? Brothers. And it does mean sisters too. It's not being, trying to be offensive there. It's, but what it's saying is those that are part of the family of God. This is not all of creation. Please let me clarify one thing that, that we're not doing because we're mean-spirited. But this is for those who have placed their trust in the work of Christ. And experience repentance, even repentance, a gift from God that we could repent of our sins and, and turn to Christ as our salvation. This is not universalism. This is not, well, you know, God made all of us. Yes, we have all been created by God, but we're not all in the family of God. I don't say that to be mean. I say that in the most humble of ways, guys. The family of God, the brothers and sisters referred to here are those who know the redeeming work of Christ placed in their lives. Well, Bobby, you just shouldn't be, you know, that, that's, just, that's going to hurt some feelings. Folks, I would rather hurt your feelings now than you stand before this holy God and justice being done, but the other form of justice where you do answer for your own sins. I will stand before holy God one day justly, but because Christ has paid for all those sins. That doesn't make me more special. It makes me the most blessed man in the world. So look what he says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Verse 22, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Anybody pray yesterday? You believe that your prayers were heard by a holy God? Because of the finished work of Christ. Do you have the hope of heaven one day? Because of the finished work of Christ. Do, do, you, do you hope one day to see other loved ones that had put their faith and their trust in, in, in what Christ did? It's all because of the finished work of Christ. That's why these words are so important. Folks, please understand, when we start using words like wrath, God's wrath against sin, 
if God did not hold back his wrath from his own son, who did no sin but was willing to die for our sin, why, why would we come up with any theology that says, well, you know, somehow God's just going to look the other way one day? I mean, there's some theology out there that somehow God just, you know, love wins. <laughs> God says, well, ah, come on. If he displayed pleasure in crushing his son because of sin, because he's a holy God, don't think that you and I are going to get a pass one day. The only way that we ever can stand before this holy God, and if you want to say get a pass, is because what Christ did, and we've placed our trust and our faith in him. This is not church attendance. It's not getting wet in a baptismal pool. This is truly repenting of our sin, understanding by God opening our eyes to the beauty of his gospel that we what we deserve is that penalty. But God in his graciousness has given us Christ. And it's just as Ricky said before in Romans 5.8 that he demonstrates this love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, Bobby, that's just old-fashioned preaching. Well, amen. I said, there is no other gospel. There is no other gospel that we can preach. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ was forsaken so that you and I will never have to be. He became the curse so the curse would never be upon us. He suffered death so that we can live forever. The veil was torn and the separation that separated holy God from sinful man so that you and I can draw near. Folks, that's the gospel. It's the only gospel that the Bible gives us. And I don't know about you, but it kind of changes my mind about these seven saints. I, I love them all. They're all holy. They're all, I mean, they're Christ. How would a pastor ever say that they're not good and holy, okay? But the one that's most confusing, the one that doesn't seem as endearing to me is this one. Because it shows just, you know, oh my goodness, how could God do this? What is Christ experiencing? He's experiencing everything that I should experience so that I will never have to experience. That's the simple gospel. And I pray, I pray that if you have never ever turned from your own sinfulness and turned to the gracious gift of our loving Savior, that today would be that day, that God would open your eyes to the beauty of his gospel, the beauty of this sacrifice, For those that know, hey, I've done that, Pastor. I know that I'm his child because I've trusted, and I trust only the work of Christ. Then I pray that we would live in the last part of this. Let us draw near. Let us draw near, guys. The veil's been torn. Well, some days, Pastor, I just don't feel like I'm worth. You were never worthy, but now you have worth in Christ Jesus. And now that the veil is torn, he invites you in every day, every moment, to experience life with him. In one way, this is a simple sermon. In another way, I believe it's the most important sermon that I could ever preach. It truly is the hope that we have. That in his forsaking of Christ, because of all of our sins being placed upon him, you and I now can have eternal life with God. 
right standing because all of our sins have been forgiven. Have you trusted Christ? Have you placed your trust this morning in that finished work? Let's pray. Father, there's a part of us that would want to uh, maybe dig and find something interesting. Father, maybe maybe we're more uh, interested in how big was that veil? 60 by 30 and 4 inches thick. How much did that weigh? And Father, we, we like little facts like that. That intrigues us. Father, will you just blow us away this morning? Father, will you blow us away with the, both the simplicity but yet the complexity of this gospel? Father, would you, would you help us to grasp, especially maybe those who have grown up in the church and we've heard this over and over and will you renew it in our hearts and our minds today? The beauty of the sacrifice of this Lamb of God? And Father, will you allow us this day to truly live out this instruction in Hebrews that because there is no more separation between those who are in the body of Christ, saved by the work of Christ, that we would draw near. And Father, that we would draw frequently. So Father, we love you. We thank you. Father, I do pray that if there's anyone here, Father, and in their mind, maybe they think they're a good person, or maybe in their mind they think, well, you know, I go to church, or maybe in their mind they say, you know, I raised my hand while I was in vacation Bible school in the fifth grade, and yet, Father, they're unsure about if they truly have trusted the work of your Son and Him alone. Father, that you would cause, Father, a questioning, Father, even an irritation, Father, draw them to you in the same way that you drew me when I was just 12 years old. Draw them to the beauty of this one that was forsaken so that they could find life forevermore. We love you, Father. We praise you. We stand in all of you. And we worship you as we pray all this in the hope that is Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.